Well, we're moving right along in the book of Romans here. As you can see, we're in Romans chapter 4, verses 17 through 25. Now, I'm going to begin by reading the text. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible, so feel free to follow along in your own version if you feel the need to. Verse 17, Paul began, he says, As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. In the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with the respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Now, dear ones, I want to remind you of where this section of Scripture falls within the greater chapter of Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 is very important to our theology. It's all about faith alone. So for the last time, I'm going to give you the summary slide here. And I want you to remember that in Romans 4, 1 through 8, Paul began by teaching that salvation is by faith apart from any works. And so principally speaking, what Paul was laying out is that if God justifies by his grace, his unmerited favor, and not by anything we do, our works, salvation must be faith by faith alone. And so everything else then in Romans chapter 4 flows from that core principle. So for example, then we saw in Romans 4, 9 through 12, that salvation is by faith apart from any ritual. And so yes, God-given rituals like circumcision were certainly important, but they were never salvific in and of themselves. They were designed to point to the greater reality that we have by faith alone. Romans 4, 13 through 16, we saw that salvation was by faith apart from the law. Paul argued that, look, if we're going to be justified by law, and if you and I are going to have the promises of God, including salvation and eternal life by keeping the law, well, then the promises are going to be abolished. Why? Because none of us can keep the law. And so it's by faith alone. Now, today... In verses 17 through 25, Paul is going to qualify what kind of faith saves. Well, it's salvation by faith apart from sight. Now, as we look into this idea of salvation by faith apart from sight, this is something that confuses many evangelicals today. And the reason why is because they don't see how it applies to various issues. For example, let me show you some synonyms for sight. For example, circumstance. Do our circumstances determine what we believe? If they do, then we're believing and trusting in our circumstances, not the promises of God. And we're living not by faith, but we're living by sight. Now, think about this one. Something tangible. Do we desire a religion that promotes something physical that we can touch here and now? It may be statues, it may be icons, it may be robes, whatever it may be. Do we desire something tangible to the point where we're no longer living by faith, we're living by sight. That can be a snare for the church. 
mystical visions and audible revelations. Are we so discontent as evangelicals with God's objective word that we now desire subjective revelations through our own senses? If that's the case, then, again, we're living not by faith, but by sight. The final one, miraculous signs. I'll mention later, when I was a brand new Christian, I would attend churches that were always trying to find miraculous signs and wonders to quote-unquote prove that God is there. And if we're going to be that kind of people, again, I declare to you today, we're not living by faith, but we're living by sight. Today, in Romans 4, 17 through 25, Paul's words are a correction to these wayward desires. Paul is going to show that Abraham was the example of one who lived not by sight, but by faith alone in God's promises. If Abraham lived by sight, think about it, dear ones, would he ever be convinced that his wife is going to be able to conceive the promised son? No. But Abraham didn't live that way, did he? He lived by believing the promises of God, and he therefore became the father of what? All those who live by faith, not by sight. And so that's the major takeaway that we're going to look at here this morning. So with that, let me begin in verse 17. Now, I warn you, verse 17 is going to read very awkwardly because it connects on to verse 16. But verse 17 is somewhat awkward too because it's a hinge verse. Paul is wrapping up one thing that he's just taught, namely that Abraham was the father of all who believe. And then he's going to transition to his final concept where he's going to talk about the nature of Abraham's faith. Again, faith in God's promises, but not by sight. Romans 4, 17, he says, As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you in the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. So notice here, Paul begins by citing scripture. He says, As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. And he's citing from Genesis 17, 5. And the reason he's doing that is he's showing scriptural evidence from verse 16 as to why it is that Abraham is considered the spiritual forefather for all who believe. So what Paul was showing us there is that it doesn't matter at the end of the day if you're a Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter. God is not impressed with our ethnicity. He's not impressed where we come from or our nation. What impresses God is faith in his son. Okay, that's what Paul is finishing up on. Well, now notice he transitions to talk about the object of Abraham's faith. And what is the object or who is the object of Abraham's faith? It's God. Notice he says, in the presence of him whom he believed, even God. The even, by the way, is italicized. It's not literally in the Greek. It literally reads, in the presence of him whom he believed, God. So God and his promises in the scripture are the valid object of our faith. So Abraham believed in God and his promises. And I know as I say that, some of you are sitting here in your seats. You're saying, well, wait a minute. I trusted in Jesus Christ. Is that the same thing as trusting in God and his promises? Thanks for asking. Yes, it is. It is the same. (laughs) Now, why is it? Well, when you trusted upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you were trusting in God. Not that you're trusting in the Father. You're trusting in the Son, but he's God. In fact, Jesus says in John 14, 9, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Again, not because they're identical, we have one God and three persons, but because Jesus is equally God of the same nature, right? Now, when you trusted upon Jesus Christ, you trusted in God, but you're also trusting in God's promises. Why? Because Jesus is the culmination and the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Think about in relationship to this text today, if Abraham 
never has the promised son, Isaac? If he doesn't have Isaac, you're not going to have Jacob. Who is Jacob? Well, he's Israel. And if you don't have Israel, you don't have the 12 tribes. And if you don't have the 12 tribes, one of those tribes is Judah. And if you don't have Judah, you don't have King David. And if you don't have King David, you don't have the Messiah. So when we trust in Messiah, in Christ, we're trusting in the culmination of all of God's promises. And from him, all of the other promises of resurrection and eternal life flow. So when you trusted in Jesus Christ, you're trusting in God in his promises. And God and his promises are the valid object of faith. Now, why am I laboring this point? Because we live in a culture today that wants to use faith as a force. For example, there's a word of faith teaching church where they teach that faith is not directed toward the object of God and his faith, but instead faith is a force that we use to speak things into being and to manipulate the world around us. Okay, for example, Ken Copeland. How many in here have heard of Ken Copeland? I think most of you have. Ken Copeland is a, a, a fellow aviator. He's a pilot, and he claims that by using his faith, he can manipulate cloud formations and turn storms away from his aircraft. So do you see there he's using faith not with a valid object of God and his promises, but instead he's using faith as a force that he can manipulate the world around him. Okay, like Luke Skywalker who sees his lightsaber and uses the force to try to get it. Dear brothers and sisters, faith is not a force and it is only salvific if it is directed towards the valid object of faith. Okay, now, next I want you to see the reason why God is the valid object of faith that he and his promises, notice what it says about him. He's the one who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. So two important facts about God that we see here. One, he's the life-giving God. Deuteronomy 32, 39, God is the one who bestows life upon his people. In fact, Samuel said in 1 Samuel 2, 6, that Yahweh is the one who kills and he's the one who makes alive. He's the one who brings down to Sheol and he's the one who raises up. So the reason we should trust in God is because from God, the true God that exists, all blessings flow, including life and life eternal. Now, notice the next thing Paul says about God. He says he calls into being that which does not exist. And here, I think Paul's recalling the fact that God can create ex nihilo out of nothing. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, why is that so important? Well, if God can create ex nihilo out of nothing, certainly he can bring a baby from a dead womb. And that's why, particularly important, it's relevant to Abraham here. Now, that raises the question, why does Paul use this phrase here? Why does he say that God is the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist? Well, some scholars say, well, Paul is just simply wanting to refer to God being the life-giving God and that he creates ex nihilo. But I think it's a grander point that Paul is driving at. Some think that, well, Paul is referring to Abraham receiving Isaac back from the dead. Well, that's certainly true in Hebrews eleven nineteen, but I don't think that that's Paul's point here. So most scholars, and I would agree with him, land on the third option. And that is the reason why Paul uses this phrase that you have in the underlines is because it refers to God enabling Abraham and Sarah to conceive. Again, if Abraham trusts in God, the God who can create ex nihilo, God will certainly bring about what? He can bring about a baby from a dead womb. Here we see that 
Abraham is not trusting in his circumstances. He's trusting in a God who's all-powerful. So there was no circumstantial reason then for Abraham to believe. Notice what it says, verse 18. It says, In hope against hope he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Now, I want to focus on this phrase that's highlighted red, and I advocate a slightly different rendering because it's a little bit more clear. Literally in the Greek, you can say, who, that's Abraham, against hope, believed in hope. Now, now it's clear as a bell, right? (laughs) Well, let's pick this apart. What in the world does Paul mean that against hope he believed in hope? Let's take the second portion first. What does it mean that Abraham believed in hope? Well, in the New Testament, hope is often seen as synonymous with faith, but a future-oriented faith that's looking towards the future promises of God. Okay? So when you and I in our American vernacular use the term hope, we always have a sense of contingency to it. I hope the Vikings can actually win a Super Bowl. I hope I don't get audited by the IRS. I hope my children do well, whatever it is. There's a sense of contingency, right? But in the New Testament, the term LP, the term for hope, when it's associated with God and his promises, is always seen as an assured thing, something that has a 100% chance of occurring. Why? Because the promises of God are based on the character of God who cannot lie. Now, I want to show you an example of how faith and hope are linked together. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Hebrews 11.1. 1. Again, please turn to Hebrews 11.1. 1, and you're going to see some interesting things here in Hebrews 11.1 1, as you're turning there. You're going to see that faith and hope are in some sense synonymous. Hope, again, is faith looking forward to the future promises. But you're also going to see in this passage, again, Hebrews 11.1, 1, that we don't have something to see or circumstances in this life that we trust in. But that doesn't mean we don't have evidence. Okay, so let's look at this very carefully. Hebrews 11.1, 1, it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Now stop there. Notice there's a relationship between faith and what's hoped for. Okay, faith is, the thing, is in fact the assurance of things hoped for. So hope again is often defined as faith, but looking forward to the future promises. In fact, you'll see it later in Romans 8 used in that very way. Okay, now the next clause, notice it says the conviction of things not seen. The term conviction in the Greek, elenkos, can be rendered proof or evidence. Now, so we could literally say it's the evidence of things not seen. So notice there's nothing to see, just like Abraham. Abraham, if he looked at his wife and himself, they're too old to have kids. So he's not trusting in what he sees, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have evidence or conviction that what God has said is true. Now, why am I laboring this? Well, About 150 years ago, there was theologians called existential theologians. Soren Kierkegaard, how many have heard of him? Karl Barth, many of you have heard of him as well. Well, they advocated a theology that ended up being calling, it was called neo-orthodoxy. But what they said is a person doesn't have any evidence to believe. You just take a blind leap in the dark. Okay? Well, that's not what the scriptures are saying. The scripture is not saying that there's no evidence to believe. It's just that our evidence doesn't come by our circumstance or what we see. Our evidence is placed in the character of God and the supernatural manner of his word. So we have plenty of evidence to believe. It's just not in what we see here and now. All right, now, uh uh-oh, 
I lost myself there for a moment. Okay, I'm back on. Let's go to the next phrase. It's actually the first portion. What does it mean then against hope that he believed in hope? Well, against hope, I think here, is just Paul's way of saying that there was no outward circumstance that would indicate any of these things would come about. There was no circumstance other than receiving God's word that would indicate Sarah would conceive. Abraham simply believed in the character of God. All right, now, what's the result of Abraham believing against hope? Well, it says, so that. There's a purpose statement or a result clause. So that he might become the father of many nations. In fact, Paul goes on to say, it's according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. And that's very important, that last phrase, because it comes from Genesis 15.5. Right after Genesis 15.5, you have Genesis 15.6. <laughs> That's why I get paid the big bucks. <laughs> Genesis 15, 6 is where it says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So what Paul is showing us is indeed what Abraham was believing. Again, he wasn't believing in circumstance or what he saw. He was believing in the character of God and his promises. So Abraham believed despite what he saw. Verses 19 through 21, Paul says, Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. So Paul here is saying that Abraham did not grow weak in his faith. And that would have been very easy to do, because from Abraham's perspective, he and his wife were just two old people, well past the child-rearing years. In fact, notice the text says that according to his own body, it was now as good as dead. <laughs> How many feel like you're as good as dead sometimes when you wake up? I felt that before. He was about 100 years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. So the visible circumstances that Abraham saw, it was bleak. There was no way that there was going to be a baby boy. Okay? But he trusted in God, didn't he? Now, how does... Paul know all of this information about Abraham? Well, he knows from Scripture. Notice Genesis 18, 11. It says, Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. That's all Paul knows. It was revealed in Scripture. Now, turn your Bibles to Genesis 18. I want to look further at this passage. We'll look at Genesis 18, verses 11 through 14. Again, Genesis 18, verses 11 through 14. And as you're turning there, what we're going to be interested in is the nature of Abraham's faith. Exactly what was Abraham believing in in this text here? It's very interesting. Genesis 18, 11 through 14. Again, it says, Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Verse 12, Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure? my Lord being old also. Now stop there. Notice Sarah laughed. Now when Isaac, the promised child, comes, what's his name mean? It means laughter. And so we have a little pun, don't we? A little pun on the little bit of disbelief that's going on. Okay, now notice in verse 13, it says, And Yahweh said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for Yahweh? So what's the obvious answer to that rhetorical question? Is anything too difficult for Yahweh? The obvious answer is no. Now, notice the term difficult. It comes from the Hebrew term pala, 
And Paulette is used in other texts that are significant, like, for example, Isaiah chapter 9. Remember in Isaiah chapter 9, it says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be what? Wonderful counselor is the first thing we see. And the term wonderful comes from Paulette. And it literally means a miracle worker. And so the one who is going to be born in Isaiah 9, 6 wasn't just anyone. It's God, the God-man, who's a miracle worker. And so it's the same idea here. Is anything too miraculous for Yahweh? Well, of course not. If God can create ex nihilo out of nothing, certainly he can bring about a baby boy from even a dead womb. That's the point. And so he goes on to say, Yahweh does. He says, at the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. And so what's Abraham believing in? He believes that he's going to have a son, a son of promise. And how many times in Scripture do we hear the wonderful news, and -and so-and-so shall conceive a son? We saw it in Isaiah 9, 6, as I just mentioned. But think about Isaiah 7, 14. In Isaiah's day, He's giving this message to King Ahaz. He says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign, Ahaz. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. And she will call his name, what? Emmanuel. God with us. Fast forward, Matthew 121, the New Testament. We have the angel of the Lord talking to Joseph. And he says, Your wife, Mary, is going to conceive a son. And you're going to name him Jesus. Why? Because he's going to save his people from their sins. Brothers and sisters, Abraham believed in the coming son. And without the son Isaac, you and I wouldn't have the son Jesus to believe. And so there's a connection between Abraham's faith and ours as well. So Abraham did not waver then in disbelief, but he was absolutely convinced, it says, at the promise of God. Notice in the red, it says he was fully assured that what God had promised he was able also to perform. Abraham believed in God's word, not in what he saw, not in his circumstances. He lived by faith, not by sight. Now, as we go into verses 22 then, through 25, Paul is going to reach a conclusion and an application. Paul says, therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Notice the therefore that's in bold. That's Dio. And it shows that Paul has come to a conclusion. Now, what is his conclusion? Well, he tips you off right away because notice in all caps, he cites again Genesis 15, 6. It was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, you and I cannot overestimate the significance of Genesis 15, 6. For Paul, it is the core text all the way through Romans chapter 4 that proves that people are saved by faith alone. The way that you are justified is not by works, it's not by ritual, it's not by keeping the law, it's not by sight, it's not by circumstance, it's by faith alone. And Genesis 15, 6 is absolute proof that that's how God has always operated. That's why he cites it. In fact, notice the term credited, I have highlighted in red, it's used three times. 
The term credited is that very important term, legitimai. And this has to do with the imputed righteousness that God gives us. Why is this important? Because in the summary, remember, Paul has laid out from Romans 1 all the way to the beginning of Romans chapter 3 that no human being anywhere on the planet has any righteousness in and of themselves. And so then at the midpoint of Romans 3, all the way through Romans chapter 4, what Paul shows us is that the only chance you have to have true righteousness and therefore stand before a holy and righteous God is that it's credited to you. It's legitimai, it's imputed to your account. And again, it's by faith alone. And so that's why he says in verse 23, it's for us too. He says, it's not only for his sake that it was written, that it was credited to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be credited. You and I are justified the same way that Abraham was. It's by faith alone. Dear ones, it's exciting. That's what Paul's laying out for us. Now, notice he goes on to say, he says, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord. Now, he's talking about us as believers in the new covenant here. For all believers who trust in God and his promises. But notice again, Paul talks about faith in the Father. And as I laid out earlier, when you and I trusted in Jesus, we've trusted in God and his promises. So why does Paul keep linking our faith to the Father? Because he wants to show the closest possible relationship he can between Abraham's faith and between our faith. They're really synonymous. He trusted in the future son. We trust in the son who has come. We trust in the same God, the same promises. Yes, we have more revelation in some sense. We're more blessed because of that. But it's the same Savior, same God, same atonement, the same faith. Now, notice this last, oops, I hit the wrong button here. Notice here in verse 25, the focus now is on Jesus. Notice where it says, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. This is all about Jesus. And it's about who he is. And this probably comes from an early creed that Paul is citing, but it creates a little bit of trouble as we interpret it. Let me explain why. The first portion is straightforward. It says, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions. Notice the preposition because, dia. So there is a causal relationship, according to what Paul is saying, between our transgressions and Jesus being handed over to die. Why did Jesus die? It was because of our transgressions. Now, we see that, and that makes sense to us. We know that Jesus, who was the sinless one, died for us in order to bring us to God. He made atonement for us, didn't he? So we see that, and we say, oh, that makes a lot of sense. But notice the next clause. It goes on to say, and was raised because, same preposition, because of our justification. Now, let's think about this just for a moment. If the first preposition was causal, and it says, look, our transgressions are the cause of Jesus being delivered, well, then the parallel text would indicate that our justification was the cause of Jesus' resurrection. And so that's where we start thinking, well, wait a minute, how is my justification the cause of Jesus' resurrection? Now, how is this reconciled? Well, there's a couple of options. One way we can reconcile is simply to use the because in both instances with this preposition and say that generically, Paul is just talking about how Christ's resurrection 
was really proof of our justification. And we shouldn't be adverse to that. Why? Because Paul teaches that in Acts 17, that God furnished proof to all men by raising Jesus Christ from the Lord, or from the dead, excuse me. Now, the better option, though, I think is option two, and that is there's some elasticity to these prepositions. We could render it for the sake of. Okay, in this way, we would say he who was delivered over for the sake of our transgressions and was raised for the sake of our justification. And the idea here then would be that Christ's resurrection life, because he always lives to make intercession for us, he lives to make sure that we don't ultimately fail. And I think that that's probably what Paul is thinking of because it's his point when we get just 10 verses later in Romans 5.10. At the end of the day, dear ones, Jesus not only saved you because he died for you, but he also saves you because he lives forevermore in his resurrection to keep you from the pit. And that, I think, is what Paul is ending on. All right? Now, two big pictures that I want you to think from Romans 4. Number one, we have to know from all of Romans 4 that our right standing before God is not by anything we do. It's by faith alone. That's it. The second thing that we have to take away from verses 17 through 25 is that your Christian life cannot be walked by sight. If you're going to go by the circumstances of your life, and trust in your circumstances or anything other than trusting in God's promises, you'll be led astray. We are to know that the substance of faith is not directed towards what we see in this world, but it has to be directed towards the character of God and his supernatural word. And so that leads me to our applications. I just have one point, but I think it's an important point that we want to drive home today. We must know that saving faith requires us to believe God's promises despite our circumstances and without having tangible evidence in this world. That's what saving faith is. And I want you to think about all the snares in the church today and that have always been with the people of God that lead people to live by sight rather than by faith. Again, the need for miracles. When I was a brand new believer, I went to this church and they're always trying to find the next miracle. And the logic was they would say, look, the same God who raised Jesus from the dead, he's alive today. And therefore, we should expect miracles. Now, the irony is, these were people who believed in human ability. And therefore, ironically, salvation to them, when people come to Christ, was not miraculous. But what's so interesting is in the scriptures, we should know theologically that when anyone comes to faith in Jesus Christ, it's a supernatural work of God. That's a true miracle. And so when Jesus says in John 14, 12, greater works than these will you do, that's what he's referring to. So yes, every time someone's converted, that's miraculous. But notice those miracles don't count in some theological circles. And so they're always trying to conjure up a different kind of miracle that supposedly proves that God is there. And at the end of the day, what they're really doing is they're trying to live by sight and not by faith. How about the need for visions and extra-biblical revelation? The new apostolic reformation movement. It's not content with what God has revealed from Genesis to Revelation. And therefore, they're going to come up with new revelations. It's just a form of learning to live by sight and not by faith again. The need for feeling close. Feeling close to God at the end of the day is somewhat irrelevant. Because it's the objective promises of God that tell us despite how we feel, that by faith in Christ, we are as close as we can be. If we have to always feel close to God, we have to have an experience where living by sight 
not by faith. How about the need for something tangible? Bells, whistles, icons, statues, robes, all those things. Again, in and of themselves, they're not bad, but if we start trusting in those things or need those things, it's a sign that we're living not by faith but by sight. Now, I want you to see there's a correction in Romans to this kind of thinking, where in Romans chapter 8, Paul explains the true nature of saving faith. And what you're going to see in this text is that saving faith has nothing to do with what we see. It has nothing to do with our circumstance. Romans 8, 23 through 25, I'll take just part by part. Paul begins, he says, and not only this. Now, why does he say that? Because he has just said in the previous verse that the whole creation groans and longs in childbirth for its redemption. Now he's going to talk about human beings. He says, and not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. Now, let me just stop there. What in the world is the first fruits of the Spirit? Well, remember, the first fruits is the sense of a down payment. In Leviticus 23, God commanded the Israelites to take the first fruits of their harvest, and they are to put it on a sheaf, and they are to wave it before the Lord. And what they would say is, Lord, we have this much of the harvest. We trust you that one day the rest is coming. Okay, so they were trusting that God would provide for them. Well, here Paul is saying that the first fruits that were for us was the deposit of the Spirit. But one day the rest of the harvest is going to come, and you're going to see it's the resurrection. He says, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, namely, what? The, redo- the redemption of our body. So that's the rest that the down payment pointed to. The redemption of the body is the resurrection. That's our future hope. Now, in verse 24, he says, for in hope we have been saved. Stop there. Notice here how hope is being used synonymously with faith. Could we not say, by faith you have been saved? Well, certainly you can say that. So here he's saying, well, in in hope you've been saved. Why? Because hope is synonymous with faith. It's looking in a future orientation towards the promises of God. In this instance, the resurrection. All right, now, notice what he goes on to say then. He says, but hope that is seen is what? It's not hope. And so again, you could say faith that is seen is not faith. And he says, for who hopes or has faith in what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Dear brothers and sisters, you and I cannot see our resurrection. By the way, anybody see the resurrected body in the mirror today? It wasn't me, I'll tell you that. We can't see our resurrection any more than Abraham could see the promised son and how the promised son could come about from a dead womb and from him being so old. So the faith then is not directed towards what we see or in circumstance. It has to be directed towards the promise of God. Now, in history, I want to show you an example of what happens to the people of God when they start to live by sight rather than by faith. And to me, one of the greatest examples of this tragedy happens at the incident of the building of the golden calf. Exodus chapter 32. Let me explain what happens here. Exodus 32, remember the people of Israel have gone through the wilderness. They're at Sinai. Listen to what Moses writes here. Exodus 32, 1. It says, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, 
the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And when they say that, what they're really saying is we can't see him. The mediator of God has gone up on the mountain and we can't see him. So what we want now, Aaron, is we want a God that we can see. And so that's why they say, come make us a God who will go before us. And so what they do is they build a golden calf, a false idol, a God that they can see, a God that they can control, and a God that doesn't have any moral demands upon them. Now, let me make the relationship to us in the new covenant. You and I in the new covenant have a mediator. Mediator is who? Jesus Christ. And he is also ascended on high, just like Moses did, and we can't see him. You and I can't see the mediator, can we? And so the temptation for you and I is to say, I can't see him. I don't know what's become of him. And so what I'm going to do then is I'm going to build my golden calf and I'm going to come up with an idol that I can see, an idol that I can control, and an idol that doesn't make any moral demands on my life. And that's what's happened to evangelicalism. Evangelicalism has built their golden calves in various ways. Dear brothers and sisters, do you understand now that we can't live by sight or circumstance? We have to live by trusting in the promises of God. Now, let me uh, give you an example from our own culture. And as I show you this example, it pains me. I found this example a few weeks ago, and it's just, it brought tears to my eyes because it's young people being led astray. But I want to show you this example of how kids are in a quote-unquote discipleship program, and they're being taught to do something 180 degrees different than what the scriptures are teaching. Okay, let me show you the example. By the way, this comes from, notice I have Devozine. Devozine is a devotional magazine for youth. In fact, let me read from their website. They say, quote, Devozine is a devotional lifestyle magazine, Devozine for short, designed just for youth and published by the Upper Room in Nashville, Tennessee. Devozine is written by young people and by adults who work with them and love them. Now, I don't disagree that they probably do love them. What breaks my heart is, and remember, this isn't happening in, you know, Berkeley. This is in Nashville, Tennessee, quote-unquote, the Bible Belt, right? Well, read what their sanctification and their discipleship program consists of, coloring mandalas. This is right from their site. It says, in the past few years, while working with a children's spirituality program called the Way of the Child, I have discovered the practice of coloring mandalas which has added a whole new dimension to my coloring. The purpose of coloring mandalas is spiritual in nature, designed to bring me closer to God and to help me get in touch with my heart. Now, what's a mandala? Well, a mandala kind of looks like if you put a bunch of snowflakes that are concentric circles and put them together, and then supposedly what you do is you color it and you get closer to God. And so really it's just another way of walking a labyrinth, but you're doing it by coloring. And the claim then is this brings relaxation to their bodies and their minds. But what they really want relaxation in their mind for is so that they can come into the contact with the oneness. That is the universe who they believe is, in fact, God. So now there's a wholesale rejection of theism, a creator and a creation. And now we have Eastern panentheism or pantheism where God and the creation are one. Okay, that's how far we've fallen. And so realize what they're really doing is what Paul said in Romans 1.25. They're worshiping and serving the creation rather than the creator. 
And so they're doing absolutely the opposite of what we just learned today. They're trying to get closer to God by sight and not by faith. And it breaks my heart. And so many uh, other examples could be provided of just such a thing. All right, how heartbreaking. Now, what I want you to see then is notice the claim. This brings us closer to God. Well, how are we really close to God? Well, Hebrews 11.6, the writer of Hebrews tells us, he says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God, now here's how we draw near, must believe. We must believe. That's how we draw near. It's not by coloring a Mandela or walking a labyrinth. It's not by doing any of those things. It's by believing. And notice what he says we must believe in. That he exists, there's God. And here comes the promises. And that he rewards those who seek him. So drawing near to God, when you trusted upon Jesus Christ, you believed in God and his promises, and you cannot get any closer to God than by drawing near through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, there are some days through circumstance and what you see, you don't feel like it. It doesn't matter what you feel. When I was an airline pilot, sometimes my attitude indicator would say I'm straight and level, and I'd feel like I'm spinning off into the weeds. Well, it doesn't matter what I feel. I live on my instrument panel. If I don't, I would have lived about 15 minutes as an airline pilot. Because I was in the clouds all the time. Well, not all the time, but a lot, right? The same way for us, brothers and sisters. You and I cannot live by our feelings, what we see. We have to live by believing the promises of God. All right, now, let me continue on, and I want you to see how we have to have faith in God's word alone. I want you to see how the writer of Hebrews continues this thought in verse 7. Notice here in Hebrews eleven seven, he continues, he says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God, concerning events as yet unseen and reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, notice in the bold, the contention here is that Noah was being warned by God. Now, how was Noah warned? Well, it was through God's word. So Noah had God's word, but notice his warning. It was of events as yet unseen, There was nothing to tip Noah off in his circumstances or what he saw that the judgment was coming. And so for all practical purposes, Noah had the same thing that you and I had. There's nothing that we see that says judgment's coming. We have to believe the word of God. Well, that's exactly what he had. And so he became an heir of the promises. What it says in the red, it was by faith. So again, Noah wasn't one who lived by sight. He lived by faith. Now, let me show you an example of another group of rascals here that aren't doing so. They're living by sight and not by faith. And that would be the scribes and the Pharisees. Matthew 12, 38 through 40. This is a very strong correction here that Jesus gives the scribes and the Pharisees. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, that's Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Let's stop there. Notice, what do they want? They want to see something. They're not content by believing God's promises, which would bring them to messianic salvation. They want to see something. You show us something, Jesus. We want to see. Now, notice Jesus' response is not, wow, you guys are godly people. You want to see something? No, what does he say? It says, but he answered them, and he says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of, of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights 
in the heart of the earth. Dear ones, notice what Jesus is saying is you're not going to be given anything to see. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks for extra biblical revelation, seeks for other signs, but none are going to be given to it except what? The sign of Jonah. Now, what is so significant about the sign of Jonah? Well, let me put it together. The sign of Jonah is significant because Jonah was a prophet. And there was something unusual about that Jonah, according to the people of Nineveh. Remember, Jonah was dead, for all practical purposes, in the belly of a fish for three days. And so when he was spit up on shore, the people of Nineveh said, there's something different about him. He smells a little bit. And he was in the belly of a fish for three days. And so maybe we should listen to him. Maybe he really is a prophet. And so they listened and they repented. What Jesus is saying is in the same way, there's something unusual about Christ. You see, he's not just any prophet. He's the prophet par excellence. He is the spokesman for God. In fact, he is God. He was the one who was promised from Moses that God would raise up a prophet from among the countrymen and if we wouldn't listen to him, it would be required of us. And this Jesus also was dead for three days to show all the world that we should listen to him. But here's what I want to ask you. How do you and I know about Jesus' resurrection? You and I can't see his resurrection, and we can't see our resurrection. So what then is the sign of Jonah? The sign of Jonah is Jesus' resurrection, but you can't see it, can you? So how do you know about it? You have evidence that comes from God, his character, and his supernatural word. The scripture alone. Scripture alone is what you and I have. The same thing that Noah had, the same thing that Abraham had, it's the word of God alone. Dear brothers and sisters, what you and I have to conclude today is that you and I must not be those who live by sight. If you and I are going to be those who aren't going to tolerate God's word, we will spin off towards experience. We will try to conjure up extra biblical revelations. But if you and I will be those who will live by believing the promises of God, we're going to be fellow heirs with Abraham, all of those who live by faith and not by sight and inherit the very promises of God. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you've given us objective truth from your scripture, that your scripture indeed is a lamp that lights up our, our way, and that we know how to get to you, we know what pleases you, because you've revealed it through your apostles and prophets. And I do pray, Heavenly Father, for my brothers and sisters, that you would help them see these categories clearly, so that we could minister to others who did not. I do pray for these kids who are being led astray. I pray, Lord, that they would return to Scripture. And I do pray for our church at large in Minnesota and America that we as evangelicals would return to sola scriptura, that we would trust in your word alone and we would live by faith and not by sight. And we praise you and we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.